Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 8. We're going to be in Psalm 8 this morning. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you can look around. We have blue ones scattered throughout the, the chairs, so maybe you can find one. And if you don't have a Bible that you can understand in modern English, you're welcome to take that one home with you. We also have a bunch of them out on our literature shelf and all kinds of other books and goodies out there that are free to you if you can use them. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 8, and we will read this psalm once again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries and make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, we thank you for who you are, that you are a God who is indeed majestic, who is indeed glorious, and that you've given us the, the privilege to be able to worship you, to, to call you our Lord. God, we thank you for your word, for its veracity, that it is truthfulness, that it is it is straight from the mouth of God, and we can, we can trust it. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning as we look into your word, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would draw us into a, an attitude of worship, that we'd have a, a better understanding of who you are and who we are after looking at the psalm. God, thank you for David, for the insights that you've given to him. And pray once again for those who aren't able to join us this morning, that you would be with them. We thank you for who you are, for your word, for your church for everything you've done to bless us. We are so undeserving. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, earlier this week, one of my boys was asking me about a conversation that he had had with my mother once upon a time about uh, a football player that I ran into at a store once. And I had completely forgotten all about this. I had no idea what he was talking about until I racked my brain for a minute. And back in 2004, I was at the eye doctor and I ran into Alex Smith. And at that point, he was the star starting quarterback for the Utah Utes, and I knew who he was, and I saw him there, and I was mildly awestruck, not too much. And I remember distinctly wondering if I should ask him for an autograph, but I didn't have any Utes memorabilia on me. I didn't have his card or anything. All I had was my San Francisco 49ers hat. And he didn't play for the San Francisco 49ers. He wasn't even in the NFL. So I didn't ask him for an autograph. Well, the next year, he was drafted number one overall by the San Francisco 49ers. And I realized that I had missed my opportunity to have the first ever signed piece of memorabilia by Alex Smith. So that's my, my famous person story that I completely forgot about. But I know that we, we have those stories, right? People that we know that are somewhat famous or they have some, some sort of majesty to their name. Well, again, ironically, this same week, Brittany asked me about 
that football player who broke his leg in a grotesque way. And moments later, we're looking at a video of Alex Smith and seeing his leg bent backwards in a way that God didn't design it to bend. And that was the beginning of the end of his career in the NFL. So, uh, no matter how majestic, no matter how glorious or famous anybody is, we, we're still men, right? We're still fallen creatures. We will always be humbled. Our glory, our majesty, our fame always pales in comparison to that of God's. Uh, we are still merely men made of the dust of the ground, and we need to remember that instead of placing people up on these pedestals and acting as if they are greater than they are indeed. But as we've already read a couple of times this morning, we're going to be looking at the majesty of the highest of high, the Lord, our Lord. And starting in verse 1 of this psalm, David is the one who is, is writing. We have to remember that, that uh, this is David who is writing. We can look down in verse 3 and uh, we can kind of get an idea that he's sitting out underneath the night sky. He says that he is pondering the moon and the stars that the Lord has ordained. So, and he doesn't mention the sun, so most people kind of speculate that he's sitting under the night sky. David, being a former shepherd, he would have had a, a great opportunity to sit under many a night sky um, while he was recovering from battle. Um, remember, he was a great warrior. He would have had many opportunities to sit under the night sky and just ponder the glory and the majesty of God. Running and escaping from Saul, he would have been able to sit there and, and wonder, my, my God, oh Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name. Uh, we don't know when exactly this took place, but um, he was pondering God and his majesty from the night sky. And before we even get started, I want to look at Psalm 19, another psalm that David wrote just declaring the greatness of God and the splendor that he displays in the heavens. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun. And David, again, this great um, poetic mastermind who has written half of our Psalms, he realizes there are no words to declare the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God. And yet he's attempting to do so. He's offering up praise in Psalm 19, and then again back here in Psalm 8. And he begins here by saying, O Lord, our Lord. O Yahweh, our Adonai. We looked at those words a little bit earlier in Sunday school. So Yahweh, that's the, the special name for, for God. That is his covenant name for his, his chosen people for Israel. Uh, we can distinguish it in our English Bibles by seeing that it's in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And this is speaking of the fact that God is self-existent. He is a self-created, not self-created, my bad, self-existent one. Self-creation is uh, utter foolishness. He is the self-existent one, the non-created one, all right? Got to get that on record. Uh, self-existent, non-created. He is the Lord who has no Lord above him, nobody else. He doesn't take counsel from anybody else. He alone is Yahweh. And Adonai speaks to the fact that he is our master. He is the one who's in charge. He is the, the despot. 
who we have to look to and realize he is our leader, right? So, O Yahweh, the self-existent one, the non-created one, uh, our master and our Lord. David says, how majestic is your name in all the earth? How majestic, how glorious, how set apart, how distinct is your name in all the earth? And I have a quote here about, um, on this word, majestic. Do we have that quote pulled up, Walker? All right, so Gerald Wilson says, the Hebrew term adir, uh, translated majestic, elsewhere describes a mighty ship or a leader or nobles. The common thread seems to be one of impressive, almost intimidating power. It is a power that is visible, that's on display for all to see. A power that is on display that we can all see. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, how set apart, how distinguished. And I like how he says it's almost intimidating power, having this recognition, this realization that God is indeed majestic in all of the earth. Now, we don't have to look too far to see God's majesty in the earth. We don't have to look too far to see his, his glory. I think of just looking outside this morning and seeing the snow and thinking of the, the cycles of the water that the water goes through, that God blesses us with rain that we take and we use to, to nourish ourselves, to, to feed ourselves, to sustain ourselves. And we use it to, to bathe, to, to do all kinds of things, to irrigate our land, right? And then it's evaporated up and it comes back down as snow and we should be thankful and grateful and not complain like I do often. Um, but just looking at that, the beauty and the complexity and how God works within our natural world, looking at the, the blood cycle within our own bodies, that our, our bodies need blood and our, our heart being designed by God pumps that blood to every uh, part of our body that needs that blood to take that nutrition that God has given us through the, the rain and the plants and the crops that that rain has taken and, and grown up and that food sustains us. And again, our blood will be pumped by our heart and deliver that nutrition to the, the perfect part of our body to right where it needs to go. Our, our whole world is amazing and incredible and complex and a testament to the majesty of God. And Paul says in Romans 1, 19-20, he says that we all have an understanding of this reality that there is a God, that God has shown us that there is a God, that what may be known about God is plain to us because God has made it plain to us. For since the beginning of the world, God's eternal power, his divine quality has been clearly seen through what has been made. So speaking of his eternal power, God is in control of, of all things. This is a testament to the fact that, that he is capable, that he is able that there is nothing that is too difficult for God. Again, looking at uh, just the, the way that our world functions is a testament to the fact that there is no such thing as our world being self-created, right? Hopefully we all realize when I slipped earlier and I said God is self-created, that's, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't work. And yet that's the position that the world as a whole takes on the earth, that there is just a big bang, right? Just poof. And out of nothing, something came. Well, that, that doesn't make sense, right? That goes against science. That is anti-science. And the world cannot be eternal. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that everything is tending towards entropy. Everything is getting worse and worse, not better and better, right? Uh, our, our bodies, as we grow older, they break down. They don't get better and better. Our cars that we bought and we drove off the lot and we start to add miles to that engine, it doesn't get better and better. It gets worse and worse. 
Same thing goes with the world. So the world itself is a testament to God's eternal power, to his divine nature. We see the attributes of God, again, throughout creation, the fact that he shows mercy and grace to, to everybody. There's a common grace that God gives to, to everybody who walks this earth, even those who don't know him, who don't bow the knee and call him Lord and Master and Adonai, the one who, the, the one who we bow our knee to. God still provides rain for them. His rain falls on the just and the unjust. His sun shines on the just and the unjust. He gives food and grace and love to, to everybody in uh, a smaller degree than what he gives to those who have his special grace. But we see through creation his eternal power, his divine nature. And Paul says in that passage in Romans 1 that we are all without excuse that we know that there's a God. He has told us both internally and externally through general revelation that there is a God. And yet we suppress this truth. We push it down. We are self-deceived because of our unrighteousness. We, we neglect to yield to this God, to realize that he is indeed majestic. I'm back in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So not only has God shown his majesty and his splendor on earth, but above the heavens. He has shown us who he is, the fact that he is completely distinct, completely set apart, completely majestic in a way that is far more superior to Alex Smith, right? Or any other hero or any other person that we might put up on a pedestal. God is absolutely majestic, and he displays this above the heavens. Did you guys know that the speed of light, which is just mind-blowing, it's mind-boggling, is 186,000 miles per second? Per second, not per minute, not per hour. 186,000 miles per second. And traveling at that speed, we could go around our Earth seven and a half times in one second. That's, we should just pause right there and, and think. Seven and a half times in one second, traveling at the speed of light, the light that God made that he spoke out of his mouth, Right? Uh, going at that rate, it would take us two seconds to get from here to the moon at the speed of light. That's, that's a trip. That just blows my mind. I can't even keep up with that, right? Going to the sun, the sun is only eight minutes away from us traveling at 186,000 miles per second. That's a trip. That is, that's crazy. That just speaks of the grandeur of the majesty of God, which is displayed above the heavens, that he is that powerful and that majestic that this light he spoke out of his mouth travels at that speed and it just gives us a, a better understanding of how big and how vast this universe that he has created is that his splendor is on display above the heavens verse 2 from the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful Cease. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. And we see this, this idea of how God works, kind of contrary to how we think he ought to work, how contrary to how we might work if we were God, right? So in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, Paul again says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, 
the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So God takes the lowly. God takes the humble. God takes those things, those people like us who are not impressive, to shame those people who, who are impressive. God works counterintuitively to how we might think he would work, to use the, the weak and the lowly like infants and nursing babes to shame those who are proud and high and lifted up. And we see this, this verse from Psalm 8 to quoted by Jesus in Matthew 21. And, and I just love this. Uh, we'll have Matthew 21 up on screen. I want you guys to read this with me. This is when Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the temple. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. It says that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. I just love that. Jesus coming in and setting things straight. He says, This is my house, and my house is going to be called a house of prayer. Verse 14, And the blind and the lame, again, the lowly, the weak, right? They came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. See, the kids, they recognized, they realized, this is Hosanna, the son of David. And these other people, these high and lofty lifted up, these self-righteous people, they became indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear these children and what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, you, have you never heard? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. And again, remember back in Psalm 8 where Jesus is quoting from. This was speaking of the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the non-created one. And Jesus takes and he applies this to himself. He says, these babies, they're crying out to the self-existent one, to the non-created one. They're crying out to me and they're singing my praise because I and I alone am God. He is equating himself with Yahweh in this verse, in this passage realizing that he uses the lowly and the weak to shame the wise and the lifted up. I have another quote from Matthew Henry on this verse. Matthew Henry says, The care that God takes of little children when they first come into the world, the most helpless of all animals, the special protection that they are under, and the provision that nature has made for them ought to be acknowledged by every one of us to the glory of God as a great instance of his power and goodness, and the more sensibly because we have all had the benefit of it. This is such an instance of his goodness as may forever put to silence the enemies of his glory who say there is no God. The Bible says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And again, God has made himself plain and clear to us to be able to look at a, a flower, to be able to look at the, the intricacies of not only this world, but the heavens, and to say there's no God, that it just happens by mistake, by accident. What a foolish thing to deny God of his majesty and his power that he so rightly deserves. So, in those first two verses, we saw God's majestic power and how he, again, is, he is alone. There is only one God, and there is nobody like him. He doesn't share his glory with anybody else. That is God's majestic power. Secondly, I want to look 
in verses 3 and 4 at man's significant insignificance. It's not a, a minor insignificance that we have, but we are significantly insignificant. And David realizes that just as we ought to. In verse 3, David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Again, David is drawn back to considering the heavens, looking at the moon and the stars, and he identifies them as, as God's heavens. I consider your heavens God, right? They're not David's. They're not something that um, are, are for him. He has a very theocentric mindset that he is uh, focused on God and the fact that they are his, and he says that they are the work of his fingers. Now, this ought to communicate a couple of different thoughts to us. One, we have kind of a, a general understanding in our culture and our society of people who use their, their mind. They work with their mind. When Jeremy's sitting in his office throughout the week, um, exegeting the text and preparing sermons and counseling, he's primarily working with his mind, right? Not a hammer and a saw. Uh, Mark and Jess, on the other hand, when they're working throughout the week, uh, doing construction, that's uh, not the word that you would use, right? They do much prettier stuff than that, but they work with their hands with saws and hammers and tools and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they're working with their hands. Um, and in a, a similar vein, there are professions that work with their, their fingers. I think of uh, Joe. Joe's not here today, but she does embroidery, sewing, like a very detailed, meticulous type of work. Um, Mike and Sandra, back in the day when you guys were doing surgery with your fingers, right? That's very detailed, meticulous, intricate work that um, takes a lot of precision. And God, when he works in this world, he does so in a very precise way. Again, thinking of a flower, thinking of a pine cone and the way that that is, is formed by God, by the work of his fingers. Um, the, the eye is a common uh, mystery in modern science. The fact that the human eye works and functions the way that it does is an utter mystery to us. We have no idea how it works. And the, the brilliant man, the, the astrophysicist Jason Lyle, uh, he said about DNA, talking about DNA, how it can just be kind of we, we've come to the place where we can pull it apart and we can unroll it like a ladder and we can read it um, and all of its detailed intricacies as a, a book. And it has so much genetic information encoded in that one piece of DNA. But he said that you can take it and you can flip it upside down and you can read it backwards. And there's a completely different set of DNA and genetic information that you can read if you take that piece of DNA and you flip it upside down, he compared it to a, a brilliant novel, to a book that has been written out precisely and um, reviewed and, and, and published and everything. And it's just a beautiful piece of literature. And then he said, it says if you would take that, that novel and you'd flip it upside down and backwards, and you'd be able to read an equally beautiful, equally uh, just amazing piece of literature that's a completely different book all its own. And that's what he compared this DNA to, that God, again, just spoke out with a word, and he created us um, being made up of this DNA. So we see the, the intricacy of, of God when David says that he made the moon and the stars by the work of his fingers. But we also see the fact that it was nothing for him, right? If we see a, a brilliant surgeon go to work all day and labor away, working with his fingers, at the end of the day, he's going to be tired. He's going to be worn out, even if it's a long day. Some guys might be able to go longer than, than others. Some gals might be able to go 15, 20 hours, but they're still going to be beat and tired. 
But when God spoke the moon and the stars into existence on day four, he didn't leave weary. He didn't leave tired or, or worn out or beat up. He rested on the seventh day to give us a, an example of how we ought to rest, of how we ought not to give ourselves constantly to our work. Not because he was tired. He didn't need any rest. God displayed the moon and the stars by the work of his fingers. And it says at the end of verse 3 that God has ordained the moon and the stars. He has appointed, he has fixed each one of these in place precisely where he wants them, precisely how he wants them in a way that is awe-inspiring, right? In a way that should cause us to see his majesty. If we were any closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were much farther away from the sun, then our planet would freeze. And yet our, our world gets so caught up and we're so worried about a change of less than 2%, 2 degrees Celsius, right? Um, but they, they fail to realize that we are in the perfect spot in comparison to the sun by design because God has ordained where the moon and where the stars should land. And he has given us that star precisely where it's at so that we can sing his praise, so that we can realize how majestic he truly is. Now, I was telling you about the, the speed of light, right, and how, how we travel at the speed of light. Um, I was doing a little bit of research this week on how we understand the speed of light. And it was back in the, the 1600s, long after David's day, right, that Galileo came along. He's the, the father of observational astronomy, and he developed this, this world-changing telescope that allows us to see into space. And there was this Dutch, uh, Dutch philosopher in 1676, 100 years before the birth of our nation, and he used Galileo's telescope to discover the speed of light. And I, I love his name. His name is Ole Romer. Not, not old, but O-L-E, Ole Romer. So Ole Romer took this telescope, and he looked at Saturn's, not Saturn's, Jupiter's moons. Saturn has a rings, right? Jupiter has a four moons. And so he looked at Jupiter's moons, and he was able to uh, come up with and actually calculate what the speed of light is. And he came up with this number, 186,000 miles per second. Uh, the, the real number for a light year is 6 trillion miles in a year. But I can't wrap my mind around that. That's too much for me. Um, so remember, a million is a, a thousand thousands, and a billion is a thousand millions, and a trillion is a thousand billions. That's, I know that's less than national debt, but that's about all I can tell you. Uh, I can't keep up with that. So we're going to stick with the smaller number, that the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. So we haven't even left our, our solar system yet in trying to figure out the, the vastness of our universe, our solar system made up of the sun and the, the eight different planets, right? Um, it used to be nine, right? So don't, don't correct me, but Pluto got kicked out because it was too small. Um, maybe critical theory will continue to take hold and we'll let Pluto back in someday. But for now, there are eight planets and uh, going on tangent. Looking outside of our solar system um, at the next closest star. So remember, eight minutes at the speed of light to travel from here to the sun. The second closest star to us is uh, Proxima Centauri. And that is 4.25 light years away from, 
from where we're at right now. So traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it would take us 53 months to reach the second closest star to us right now. We live in a, a vast universe, right? A universe that um, the, the known universe alone has 100 billion galaxies, and each of those galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars within them. That's a trip. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to say it other than that. That's just, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, right? Um, I, was telling, um, I was telling my father and mother-in-law yesterday that the, the width of our galaxy, of the Milky Way, uh, is 100 million light years. So again, traveling at 186,000 miles a second, it would take us 100 million years to travel the, the span of the Milky Way galaxy. And that's beyond my ability to think. Um, and the second closest galaxy to the Milky Way galaxy is 2 million light years away. So 2 million times 6 trillion. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm past my ability to compute, right? Um, the moon and the stars have been ordained by God. They've been placed specifically in place by God. And then in verse 4, David realizes, and again, this is way before old Romer came along, right? He's just looking up in the sky, and he's able to, to realize and to contemplate, um, I'm, I'm unworthy. He says in verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him. And again, thinking on a, a human level, David, he was, he was great. He was a great guy, right? He was a leader of the nation of Israel. He was uh, the man that the ladies used to sing, well, Saul, yeah, he's killed his thousands, but David, he's killed his tens of thousands. He was this brilliant uh, warrior. He had this brilliant strategic mind to, to go out and to, to conquer in the name of God. And he was a, a magician of of the utmost respect, who uh, could, he could jam out on that harp, right? And he wrote, again, half of our psalms. He is a man after God's own heart, and yet he realizes his utter inferiority to God, that God is far superior above him. What is man that you take thought of him? What is man, the son of man, that you care for him? He had a, a true understanding of, of God and his relationship with God. It was A.W. Tozer who said that the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God. And David had it down. And we need to study David and his understanding of God, his understanding of us as humans to be able to uh, have that proper understanding, to be able to approach a proper understanding of our Lord, our Lord. Yahweh are Adonai. Thirdly, I want to look at man's exaltation by God. David, in verses 5 through 8, he goes and he talks about how despite the fact that God is so majestic, despite the fact that we are, are so not, God has exalted man far above his station. We're going to sing a song later about how God has lifted us up above our station. And he says in verse 5, Yet, despite the fact that God is awesome, despite the fact that God takes thought of us, says, yet you have made him a little lower than God. Your version might say angels. That word is Elohim. Uh, we have been made a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works 
of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. We mentioned before how as, as mankind, we're just dust, right? Um, on the sixth day, God formed man, formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. But then he didn't just leave us as a, a little Plato project, right? Not just a pile of mud, but he breathed life into Adam. He breathed his own life into Adam. And it says that we were made in the image of God, in his likeness, that we bear the image of God. That like God, we are able to, to think and to reason. That we are able to feel and emote. And uh, we have these, these passions within us. We are able to, uh, to make choices and decisions. Again, to, to reasonably approach life. Just as God is a, a person in the sense he has personality, intellect, emotion, will. He has made us with those same capabilities. And we are not just dust. He has elevated us above all other creation, above all the oxen, the beasts of the field, the fish. God has exalted man in a place that we are unworthy to, to, to hold. He has given us that position in life. This verse is quoted in Hebrews 2. So turn with me to Hebrews 2. And let's read Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, where the author of Hebrews quotes these same words. He says, but one has testified somewhere. I'm sure he knew where. He's just being humble, right? One has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Using the Septuagint translation. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting him to... For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. He realizes this exalted, elevated state that God has given to man. But then he wraps up by saying, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So the, the author of Hebrews, he gets a little bit interpretive for us here, and he helps us to realize that it's not just speaking of God exalting us above all other creation, but this exaltation that we have as, as humans, that we have as descendants of Adam, it's a temporary exaltation. And for those who are in Christ, we will be exalted even farther. We will be glorified like him. We will share in his glory, in his likeness. And yet for those who are not in Christ, those who remain in Adam, this is as glorified as they will ever be. They will in fact be humbled for all of eternity because they have sinned against an eternal God. And now, get this, this is the, the most mind-blowing part of this whole psalm to me. There are many mind-blowing parts, but these same verses, this same passage that David used to, to lift up man, to explain and describe how God has exalted man, he now takes that and he applies it to Christ in his humility. In Hebrews 2.9, it says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
So that same phrase, to be made for a little while lower than the angels. For us, that is, that's an exaltation, right? To be lifted up, to be a little bit lower than the angels, a little bit lower than God. That, wow, we don't deserve that. But for God, for Jesus, the Son, to be made a little bit lower, that is the ultimate display of humility. Uh, let's look briefly at Philippians 2, which explains this. It describes this humility that we just got done celebrating at Christmas time, this humility of the Son. In Philippians 2 5, Paul lists Jesus up as an example for us. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but rather he emptied himself. Not of his divinity, not of any of his divine attributes, because if he did that, he wouldn't be God, right? But he emptied himself of this majesty, of this glory, of this splendor, which is rightly his, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jeremy read for us earlier uh, in Romans 3, 23 and 24, and it says that, that we have all sinned, right? We all, mankind, we have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the majesty of God. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we have been justified by the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. He has taken, he has restored that relationship. He has justified us. He has declared us righteous. That's the exaltation I'm talking about. That's the exaltation above the exaltation that we even have above the oxen and sheep and uh, all the animals. Who cares about that? But we have been exalted in Christ by the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. And that is what David realized when he was sitting down marveling at the stars that, that we have this God who is absolutely majestic. Now, maybe you notice that he he opens this psalm and he finishes this psalm in the exact same way. And that's, that's pretty common, not just in psalms, but in, in other literature, other writing, in, in speaking, presenting. That's a, a common thing that people will do. They'll, they'll open, they'll start the same way, or they'll open and close the same way so they could emphasize a point. But when David starts and he says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, he does so realizing God's intrinsic glory that he has as God. And then he realizes his state, that he doesn't measure up. And it's in light of what's in between the first and last verse that he closes out. He says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. in all the earth. And unless we have that realization, that understanding of our position in light of God's position, then we will, again, as I said, we will not be more exalted than what we are now. But if we have that same realization that David had, that Yahweh is, in fact, our, our Adonai, that he is our master, he is the one who controls all things, who we need to bow the knee to, that he alone is majestic in this earth and above the earth, then we will be able to 
enjoy that majesty with him in all of eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You are a, an amazing, incredible God, and we are so unworthy to be able to even speak to you. We thank you for Christ, our, our mediator, who has bridged that gap, who has made us able to, to come into your throne room to, to speak openly with you, who has laid down his life for us, who has paid that price, that wage that we deserve, that debt that we deserve. God, we thank you for the gospel. Help us to, to see your majesty, to see your splendor on display as we go from here and we look throughout the earth, we look throughout the heavens to realize that you are a God unlike any other. God, I pray that you would help us to, to devote our lives to you, that we would be in, in you, in Christ, and not in Adam, not in the strength of our own power. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.